The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, appoint your head, anoint your head, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. How true are those words, Father? so easy to try to serve two masters. It's so easy to get confused between them and and lost in the gray light in between. Father, I pray that we would see with clarity this morning that our whole body, our whole heart, whole being would be filled with heaven's light. And it isn't something that we can see on our own. We need you to reveal it to us. We need your spirit to be at work within us and in our midst. So spirit, I pray you move today. Speak through me. Open our ears. Open our eyes. That Christ would be our greatest treasure. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know by now that this Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. In all of its beauty and majesty and joy and peace and love. Flowing from the heart of God. Pouring out into our own hearts this majesty. And every citizen of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is blessed with immortality. To feast upon these wonders forevermore. Wonders that are not restricted only to heaven, like only on the other side in some distant future time. No, these wonders now break upon the earth through King Jesus. It's what he meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this reality, this kingdom, 
is therefore the most precious, most valuable treasure on planet Earth. There isn't anything that even comes close. And it's not only because of the wonders that it holds, but it's because of him who sacrificed everything to make a way for sinners to enter in. We are wretched sinners, filled with pervasive pride. And because of that pride and our selfishness, we were barred from the kingdom of God. We had condemned ourselves in our selfishness to be cast forever from the presence of God. And so the Father sent his Son to live as a man, be crucified as a sinner, and raised victorious from death so that we could have life everlasting, so that sinners, sinners could enjoy the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, which is given to the proud, turned poor in spirit. The rebellious, now meek, the indifferent, made merciful, the filthy in heart, purified, the lazy, loyal, even in the face of persecution, the unworthy, transformed, and immeasurably blessed. The kingdom of heaven given to those who recognize their sinful estate and their broken ways, repent and seek Jesus as their supreme treasure. These shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So I have one purpose today. It's simple and yet impossible. Christ must be our greatest treasure. I want us to see it with crystal clarity that he is the greatest treasure. I know this is an obvious statement, but when we treasure something, it means we have a great desire for that thing. Right? Treasuring is all about desire. Another way that we talk about desire is is hunger. Like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, blessed are those who desire, who long for, who treasure righteousness. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He will satisfy them. That was in Matthew 5, 6, in the Beatitudes, if you missed that. So thus, if we, if we hunger after Christ and his kingdom, that's about desire. It means that we treasure Jesus. And to treasure Jesus is to treasure his kingdom also. And doesn't that also mean that, that if we do indeed hunger for Christ, for his kingdom, then our hearts are, are groaning for satisfaction? Like We're not satisfied yet. We're still awaiting more because though Christ is with us in spirit right now, I mean, he is, he is closer to us than our breath. Though that's true, I just want to see him physically, right? I want to touch him. I want to hear his voice. I want to walk with him. Like, I want more of Jesus. I can't wait for that day. So we groan for him. And we know that the kingdom of God is in our midst, as I've just rehearsed, and yet it is not fully here. So we have a portion, and sometimes that portion feels so small, but we have a portion, yet we hunger for the fullness. We want more. Our hearts ache for the day. For the day we will see his face 
When all sin is eradicated, when hope is realized, when the kingdom of heaven is entirely unfurled on the kingdoms of earth, though we have faith in Christ, though he has given us his great kingdom, we ache for its completion. We hunger to be with Jesus. And fasting is a powerful expression of our hunger for Jesus. We make our bodies hunger for food just as our hearts should hunger for Jesus. Now for millennia, fasting has long been considered one of the spiritual disciplines meant to mark the disciples of Jesus. We deny the flesh to draw near to God. It's much like the other two spiritual disciplines that we've seen already in chapter 6. We see almsgiving or charity in verses 1 through uh, 4. Then verses 5 through 13, we see prayer to other spiritual disciplines. And now in our Verses 16 through 18, we see fasting. So traditionally, fasting, depriving yourself from food for a designated period of time. We saw Jesus do this in chapter 4 where he fasted for 40 days. Now, that's an extreme length of time to fast. Um, Very difficult. The longest I've ever fasted was for six days. It is very difficult. I can't imagine going, even attempting something close to 40 days, nor do I need to. Many more times I've fasted for a day, maybe just a couple days, maybe even a shorter amount of time. There's no rule in how long you should fast, what period of time it should be. It's just a time of of deprivation, a, a designated time where you deprive yourself of food. But it's flexible in other ways too, not just timing. You can fast from screens. You can fast from sleep. You can fast from sex. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7.5. But regardless, fasting is, is deprivation so that you can feel in your body what your heart is meant to feel. Hunger. Hunger for Christ. And maybe it's that you know that your heart isn't hungering for Christ the way it should be. That you feel cold or indifferent or dead and so perhaps you fast you make your body hungry hoping that your heart will follow because what you want is more of Jesus right I couldn't help but be struck by the song that we just sang for my love is often cold he will hold me fast Yeah, my love is often cold, and I know he holds me fast. And if my fasting can just shatter that ice a little bit by his grace, praise God. Also in the New Testament, we see the whole church fasting together, communally, and often in times of important decision. And again, it's not because... They just desire wisdom that comes from man, like, oh, now we've got this strategy because we fasted. No, it's because they want, as a, as a body of believers, more than anything, heaven's wisdom that leads them to more of Jesus, more of Jesus in our midst. May our decision lead us to that. So there's fasting in a variety of ways. It's very flexible, 
And you can see, I hope, that it's a good discipline. It is as ancient as are the people of God. And I think, likely, it's something that would be good for all of us to incorporate into our lives from time to time. Yet, like anything else, fasting can be corrupted. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. As your Father who sees in secret, sorry, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So just like we saw with charity and prayer, Jesus assumes that his disciples will be fasting. When you fast, he says, like this is just a part of life. So when they fast, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be like the hypocrites. When they fast, and he cites some way that people, and I think he particularly has the hypocrites in, or, or the Pharisees in mind, these Pharisees, they make a show of their fasting. They disfigure themselves. They look gloomy and solemn and morose. And such displays go against the very heart of fasting, right? Wanting more of Jesus? What's morose about that? It's all about being hungry for God, and yet it's It can be twisted by hypocrisy and pride and selfishness into an exercise of selfishness where you pretend to to hunger for God when truly all you desire is men's applause, that they would see how great you're suffering for Christ and admire you. Look at this remarkable self-control. And Jesus says, truly, They have received their reward. Well, that applause, that admiration, which is fleeting and gone in a moment, that's all the reward such hypocrites will ever get in their fasting. They will be no closer to Jesus. They will see no greater measure of his kingdom. There will be no spiritual reward, just this fleeting applause, an empty snack on hollow religiosity. But Christ's disciples or to fast in earnest, not morose, not bedraggled, not wearing their suffering on their sleeves. No, instead, though the disciples hunger, they put on no display because what they do is in the sight of God alone. Maybe other people will see it, but that's incidental. Really what they want is for God to see, to commune with him, to express to him how hungry we are for more of him. More of Christ, more of his kingdom. Just wanting our whole being to be united, body and soul, in that hunger for Christ. So yes, the goal is to fast before your heavenly Father. And the reward that you receive for such a posture that's found in him it's deeper relationship it's love and joy it's peace it's clarity it's self-control so on these are the treasures you receive the rewards you receive for earnest genuine fasting 
So yeah, fasting is a discipline worth the disciples' time. Just like prayer and charity. I wonder, you don't need to respond, I wonder, have you ever fasted before? When was the last time? Would you consider doing it? I'll talk more about that later. Each one of these disciplines that we've seen now in chapter 6 is an expression of where a heart's treasure lies. Your charity, your prayer, your fasting. Does your treasure lie on earth in its comforts and securities and pleasures? Or does it lie in heaven? Look at verse 19 now. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I read a number of of commentaries where the line, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, could more accurately be translated into something like, stop, stop laying up treasures for yourself on earth. Do you hear that distinction, the difference? It's significant. Because without Christ, before Christ, all of us are storing up our treasures On earth, we're storing up for ourselves earthly treasures, whether it be money or investments or clothes or tech or video games or the next thrift find or whatever the possession, our, in our selfishness, every single one of us does this. That's why Jesus needs to tell us in the most significant sermon, stop laying up for yourself treasures on earth. And then Jesus shows us why it's so foolish, why it's so foolish to lay up treasures like this. They fade, they degrade, they can be taken from you, they do not last, no earthly treasure will ever travel beyond the grave. So how fleeting are these treasures? Like they, it is foolishness, utter foolishness to obsess over them, to give your lives to their pursuit. So, in saying this, know that that Jesus' commands are not arbitrary. He's not a capricious dictator. He's not being severe. Instead, he's unreservedly caring, and he wants the best for you. And this command, this flows from a place of supreme love because he wants his disciples to possess treasures that will never fade that will never fade stop chasing the ones that fade here here take these that will never fade that will never perish he wants us to possess the very best things blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. How unshakable is that? 
The treasures we have in Christ are, are part of our salvation, which also means that every reward coming to you from God was purchased in blood on the cross. And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell your heart. That purchase was eternally secured. It is forever guarded and it is yours by faith forever. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So it is true that you were bankrupt. But the treasures of heaven, they are offered to you now, right now. Like, what if, what was that guy's name who showed up with the big checks? Give me his name. He was on TV a lot. Really cheesy. Ed McMahon showed up with those big checks. Like, I don't know how much money was on him, but it was a lot. And he showed up at the people's doors, and what would they do? Like, go crazy. So right now, in sums infinitely greater, are all the treasures of heaven written out in your name, take it, and like, We sit there like, oh, yeah, okay, I've heard that. Man, isn't this, like, shouldn't your hearts explode with how awesome this is, this gift given to you in Christ Jesus our Lord, all the treasures of heaven given to you? That's what Paul is writing about in Romans 8 when he says, He who did not spare his own son, how much more then will he give us all things? So you were bankrupt, and now the treasures of heaven are offered to you. Believe it, and take them up. Do not squander your life in unbelief and indifference, and be cast into eternity's debtor prison. Today, even today, Christ offers you these riches beyond measure. So live in them, live in the freedom of them and the joy of them, and take them out of here and and spread them around this planet. There's enough. There's enough to be spread all over this earth as the waters cover the sea. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he writes, We are treated as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Yeah, if it isn't obvious, these are not the the riches and the treasures that we find here on earth, which is what all those prosperity gospel charlatans are trying to sell. Now, the kingdom of heaven abounds with spiritual treasures, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and then life everlasting to enjoy them all forever. So now that you have been given such treasures, why? Why trade them for the vanishing drivel that so consumes our world? I've really debated saying this next part. But I've noticed at least a two-year trend where the second February of the year is one of the lowest attended services. Is that a coincidence? Does that relate to the Super Bowl? 
I don't know. What? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The significance of that verse can hardly be overstated. It's layered. There's, there's one layer that's very obvious. You give your heart to whatever it is that you treasure. So if you treasure money, you give your heart to money. If you treasure shopping, you give your heart to materialism. If you treasure entertainment, you give yourself to those pleasures and so on and so on. Whatever you treasure, you effectively make that your idol, your God. You know how to identify if you treasure a false god? Ben actually said some of these things in Sunday school class. You devote your time to it. It's the thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning. It's the thing you invest your resources in. It's, it's what you talk with your friends about. You order your priorities around that thing that you worship. The thought of that thing being suddenly taken away from you is deeply unsettling, even scary. For some, it's money, it's materialism, it's your reputation, it can be your children. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have any one thing like that. I don't have any single obsession. Perhaps, and if that is you, talk to me afterwards because I want to learn from you. But I bet that you take a whole variety of different things from all of these different places and then you lay them all before the altar of self. The altar of self. The all-consuming God of me. And that is where we are all tempted. We're all prone to it. For this is what we do with false gods. Give to them it all these things and the greatest false god that we face as the God of self. If we do not give Jesus the throne of our hearts, self establishes his throne there, and we feed it, and we feed it. But God, the true and living God, your creator, the one who came and bled for you, our hearts were made to treasure him alone. Like anything else is a lie. Our hearts were made for him. He made us that way so that only he can satisfy the hungers of our heart. And all those other hungers you have, or rather all the hungers you have, none of them will ever be satisfied by false gods, by self, but only him. We are sick without him. I mean, the Psalms just explodes with this truth. Again and again you see it. Here are just two examples. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing of the soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 22, 6. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
I love that last line. For those who are finding their satisfaction in Christ, may your hearts live forever. What a great great treasure is the Lord our God. So let us indeed give our hearts wholly unto him. And now let's look at the second layer of verse 21, or the second that I have for you. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, what we treasure determines our value. If you value things that fade and fail, you will fade and fail. As they are worthless, so has your devotion to them made you worthless. I mean, just look around the world. You see it everywhere. Worthless people chasing worthless things. And the more they chase them, the more clear it is that they live a worthless life. But if you treasure him who is supremely worthy, the creator and the king, then he values you and says you are worthy. He, the father, says you are worthy. If you desire his kingdom, he deems you worthy to receive that kingdom. And then he clothes you in his righteousness. And he unites himself to you. And he gives you the Holy Spirit. And he gives you life that you will live forever and ever. So that nothing in all creation will separate you from his love. Your heart will be united to him forever. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus gives a very brief illustration to drive that point home. In verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So in that illustration, the light is truth, particularly Truth as it emanates out of gospel realities. So when you see this truth, the light of the gospel and how it shapes the world, you see with clarity. An eye or or a heart that cannot see truly like this is thus in disorder. A person cannot function properly without seeing this truth. They stumble around this life trying to find their own way, unable to find their own way. Floyd Filson writes, if a man divides his interest and tries to focus on both God and possessions, he has no clear vision and will live without clear orientation or direction. Life not focused on God's claims and command is lost in spiritual darkness. It's like saying if you chase worthless things, you yourself become worthless. And the thing about blindness, whether it's physical or spiritual, what blind person can make their blindness go away? But didn't Jesus come to give sight to the blind? He once read from Isaiah 42 a prophecy about himself. We read that, him quoting it in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then they tried to kill him because they were so blind. Jesus is the one who makes the blind see. Yes, he did it physically while he walked the earth and he, and he restored people's sight and, and their, their irises and optic nerves and retinas, they were all healed and they could see, but far more profoundly, and he does it every day, he does it all the time, he gives spiritual sight to the eyes of the heart, allowing a whole person to see that which truly matters, the greater reality that surrounds us, that we are caught up in. He shows us most preeminently that he is the greatest treasure. There's nothing beside him. And I pray that everyone in this room has eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Because no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Most modern translations include including my ESV right here, we see the word serves. No one can serve two masters. But we can actually serve two masters. So like I've worked two jobs before and I served these different masters and I've even had the same job with different bosses telling me different things and I have to serve them in different ways in the same job and I hate that scenario, but I did it. So the Greek word rendered as serve is derived from the word doulos, slave. Unlike a servant, a slave is given wholly unto a single master. That master owns them, right? The verse would better capture Jesus' intent if it read, no one can be the slave of two masters. You cannot. cannot simultaneously be wholly given to this master and wholly given to this master. Impossible. So Jesus, it's obvious what Jesus is talking about. A, a, a full commitment to one master, an undivided heart, a whole life's obsession. A whole life's obsession. I mean, listen to the words of Paul again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. That by any means possible, I may attain, from the, res- I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I mean, that is obsession. Full-on, unrestrained unashamed obsession. And that's what Jesus calls us into. You cannot serve two masters. 
So you take those old pursuits, those earthly desires, and you count them as loss. You crucify them. You let them die on that shameful cross. For what are they going to do for you except kill you? Crucify them. Count them as loss. It is a massive... And yet, hear these words from our passage next week. Matthew 6, 33. Look, look at the verse. You're already turned to it. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first, first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So God will give you every earthly thing that you need, everything that you need, so long as it serves your pursuit of Christ and his kingdom. I mean, didn't we just see that in the Lord's Prayer? The whole prayer is structured that way. Everything for the hallowing of Jesus' name. So your food, your forgiveness, your deliverance from evil, if it's serving the hallowing of the name of God, he will give it. So brothers and sisters, I say again to you, The kingdom of heaven is the most precious, most valuable treasure on planet earth, and not only because of the wonders it holds, but because of him who sacrificed everything that sinners could enter in, that we could be reconciled unto God. Let all of our lives reflect that reality, wholly, completely. Isaiah writes, The Lord is exalted, For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. Listen to this. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. In other words, what makes you valuable, individual, church? Whether or not you treasure the Lord. The Lord is our treasure. So let us serve no other gods. None but Christ can satisfy our hearts. He is the treasure for our hearts and we ache for the fullness of his kingdom. And I know what it is like to have a cold, dull, indifferent heart. I know what it's like a lot. And I know that I want my heart to treasure him more, but it is so weak. And so perhaps, if anybody shares that feeling, you could consider fasting. Because I want my hunger for Jesus to be more acute. So I'm going to make a suggestion. Just like we give offerings together. We did it when the ushers came around, charity. Just like we pray together, we've done that numerous times this morning, so too can we fast together. Tuesday, this Tuesday, I'm going to commit to spend an entire day fasting, fasting accompanied with a greater volume of prayer. It's not just not eating food, it's, it's also praying. Not only do I want to sharpen my hunger for Christ, But I want this church to sharpen her hunger for Christ. 
I want us to spread that hunger for Christ beyond these walls into the world around us, so I will fast on Tuesday for these three things. My own spiritual state, the spiritual state of Emmanuel, and that the Spirit would use this church to spread the gospel. And I invite you to join me. In your private space, think about that for Tuesday. If Tuesday doesn't work, then maybe pick another time. And if the whole day doesn't work, pick a lesser time. And if fasting from food doesn't work, then pick something else. And I'm not suggesting this so I can be seen. I don't want you to participate if it's going to make you feel important. Rather, I suggest this because I want our collective heart to be united in treasuring Christ above all else. Father, how we fall short of treasuring you of seeing Christ as most valuable and get caught up in the weeds of this world all the time. I'm grateful for your mercy that you are patient and slow to anger. I'm grateful that you steadily come alongside and beckon and call and uproot some of those weeds and prune away those gangly branches that grow, that you have begun a good work and you will bring it to completion. And so with greater and greater clarity, from one degree of glory to another, Lord, help me, help all of us to see Christ as supremely valuable that there would be no joy in our hearts so great as our joy for him. Help us, Lord. Our hearts are so prone to wander. I feel it. Hold us fast. In Christ Jesus' name, I pray it. Amen.